0: You are listening to the Parallel State. We're after some good quality Yanks, so that's that's why you are here, really. Um, yes, quality Yank. Yeah, <laughs> uh, putting it on my CV. Oh, God. <laughs> and and
1: uh, the, the the other thing that I just want to add to what Simon to Simon's intro is is it I, what I really like about this is it always starts on a, on a we always do it we we do it on a Friday morning and it it always begins with how does it feel right now how does it feel this week. How's it feel this week in terms of your relationship between yourself and the world, you know? So it's just a very located starting point, and it doesn't have to be anything other than that, really. And I thought that what we might do is just structure the conversation around how was it for you last week, like the experience of sitting through those four, four days of counting. What did it feel like for you as as, as Americans in, in the UK? And then to think about what this week, what, how that settled this week and what you're feeling now and then to maybe talk a little bit about what we think might happen
0: in the next in the next mm-hmm. year or two really um, so it's uh, Friday the 13th of November i'm noting Friday the 13th um, and this is state of the nation um, season two episode two and um, we have uh, two guests here. Um, Uh, so in a minute we'll we'll find out who they are and um, what we're going to do is uh, go over to John Dovey who's going to uh, give us the poem for this session.
1: Thanks Simon, great. So uh, like uh, a lot of people uh, I've been pretty much locked into what's been happening in America which is going to be the subject of our conversation today and there was a distinct moment which was when uh, Trump made the first speech press conference about his denial of the results. Uh, and I was, it was one or two in the morning here. And actually, I went into a state of political rage that I've not really experienced quite so severely since my tussling with the concept of Reagan and Thatcher in the 1980s. And it prompted me to, to, to channel Swift and, and Orwell in the production of this piece of work, which is called The Pig on the Podium. The last time the pig was on the podium, pink and primped and puffed. He looked like shit, to be honest, like he might have had enough, like his overlong privileged delusion might finally be taken, knowing he can't wriggle out of this being skinned alive for bacon. The pig at the podium started life on his hind legs at the fair. But sadly, his disco dancing proved tragically square. Nevertheless, he rose to tail-biting oligarchical fame, building luxury pigsties, but never appearing quite tame, grabbing pussy, doing deals, the world's most outstanding golf cheat. His friends all agreed that for a pig, he really was quite neat. People just love a pig on a podium, they observed. And when he was on TV, they began to see his worth. The story is the truth, and the truth is always a construction. All the pig really needed was a little bit of instruction. You see, nothing's true anymore, they said. So just say what you feel. And with clickbait propaganda, we can make anything real. Let's see if this can work. Who will make a stop? Maybe a pig on a podium is what we need to get back on top. Yeah, for the lols, to upset the apple cart. Let's put a pig in the big house. It'll be a laugh. Well, the pig wasn't too clever, not remotely smart, but up on his hind legs in some lights, he almost looked the part, constantly rechecking the mirror and recolouring his skin, pumped up full of steroids. He could plausibly fit in. Practising hard, he found a way to speak that made no sense at all. His grunting, sibilant pauses, a dog whistle set of calls, broken phrases half-formed thoughts brain farts in the night smears and lies and conspiracies the tactics of his fight but now at long last reality is gaining the upper hand the pig cries wolf but it echoes ominously across the land big media big money and even big tech abandon the pig embarrassed that they even entertain the lie that we weren't big. Every word dripping from his preposterous drooling snout means the opposite of what he says. And finally, he's called out electoral integrity. The pig doesn't know what it means. Gun-toting freedom lovers, intimidating counting teams. Legal votes, not legal. It's a blizzard of misinformation. But his old tricks no longer carry that meme wave adulation. So get out, on your way, we'll make sausages from your guts, ribs and chitlins and trotters, we'll barbecue the klutz. And when we look back, we'll wonder how this ever happened, how the pig was put on the podium, made us all so saddened to forget that truth has meaning. It's the heart of being alive, a value we must believe in if we all aspire to thrive.
0: Thanks John. Brilliant as ever. Um, okay, so that set us up nicely for um, this discussion. So our two guests are Barbara Galati and Justin Hopper, uh, also known as Juddy, I, I, I seem to remember. Juddy Hopper. Um, so uh, Barbara, tell us a bit about what, what you do. Yeah.
2: Um- mainly I sit around in my PJs writing up in my study. Um, I'm an art historian. I worked at the Brooklyn Museum in the American Art Department where I was curator for about 20 years. And before that I worked as a legal assistant in, uh, in a Fifth Avenue law firm for 10 years. So I've got a rather odd background, but research is research. So law or art history, you're doing the same thing. Um, and as you probably know, I, I commuted for 17 years between Brooklyn and Bristol and finally moved over here in 2005.
0: Cool, thank you.
2: So uh, I'm Just, freelancing now.
0: Great. Justin, uh, tell us a bit about what you do you've done quite a bit of traveling backwards and forwards, haven't you? Uh, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, we're good. Okay. Yeah. Good.
3: Um, yeah. So, uh, I'm, I'm also a writer. Um, I do a couple different things. So I, I do, um, I do, uh, creative nonfiction as they call it projects, largely about landscape, um, largely about Britain and, um, uh, and I also do, uh, before COVID, <laughs> I did a lot of freelance work, um, helping all kinds of different people, whether that's, you know, uh, non-profit organizations or, or arts organizations or for-profit companies, but helping them to um, express their ideas to a general audience, um, complicated ideas made simple, that kind of thing. So, um, so those are the two kinds of sides of my writing life, mostly these days, I'm a uh, I'm a dad um thanks to lockdown and all that sort of thing so um that's my primary occupation about uh, 18 hours a day but um uh yeah and um i'm a resident of the uk now in the east of england but uh spent the vast majority of my adult life in pittsburgh pennsylvania so um you may have heard about us a lot in pittsburgh over the past weak, because Pennsylvania, of course, is one of the epicenters of um, this electoral madness. Um, however, whatever you may think of huge sections of Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh is um, is a staunch anti-Trump center, uh, the city itself, that is. So, um, so we're quite proud to have uh, played our part in fighting back whatever the hell is happening over there.
1: Thank you. I think John's going to lead us through right now. So would you like to uh, tell us a little bit about um, how last week was for you and, and how, how that long period of the count and not knowing what was going to happen, what, what were you doing? How did that feel when you were going through that last week, Barbara?
2: Um, first of all, I didn't realise how stressed I was until the end of the four or five days. Um, I was staying up until 4 or 5 in the morning, uh, watching the count, and, and just worrying about everything, and then getting up when I got up and saying, okay, what's the count in Georgia? Now that that is over, and I finally let all the stress drain out of me, all the stress is building up again, because I don't know how this is going to close off. Um, will will Trump end up going down to Mar-a-Lago for Thanksgiving and never return again? Or will he just stay, you know, in the White House until they pull him out kicking and screaming? Um,
1: so I, so, so, so uh, I just—I was just gonna say to, to, to Justin, do you feel as though that, 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 what was it like for you last week? How did it, how did it, how did it feel? What were you doing? In, in between childcare,
3: <laughs> it's been very strange um year obviously uh for everyone but in terms of this kind of relationship this transatlantic kind of dual citizenship um it's felt very strange because i haven't uh, i i actually was working on a big project in pittsburgh two big projects in pittsburgh and should have been back several times in the past six months um and of course haven't um so you know, in 2016, we went back to time it with the election to make sure I could walk in and cast my vote in person, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and that was that was quite a demoralizing event. Um, in fact, it was it was sort of terrifying. Uh, last week was a lot of sleeplessness, a lot of like you said, you know, these Georgia counties and towns that I maybe only heard from country music songs before in my life and now all of a sudden became intimately familiar with their demographics um uh, so that was quite strange but there's a sort of uncanniness to all of this happening in a way that is that feels so meaningful and so important and so close to your heart and yet between the time difference and the physical you know the physical sort of quarantine style separation um feels as though it's it's something over which you have even less control and less power than, than the reality, which is that you also have none, but, but it feels even less, incredibly stressful. And then the thing that I, I, I'm sure Barbara in, was saying this in part uh, with the beginning of her response, but um, the thing that I found really shocking was the feeling Saturday when the election was called for Joe Biden and um, And I suddenly realized for the first time how much, I think actual physical energy besides mental and emotional and psychological energy had been going into for five years now, uh, since as they say, he came down that escalator and announced his campaign for all these years, I've been putting so much thought and so much physical tension actually into this, this absolutely useless human being. And, and suddenly, it felt like, uh, you know, I heard someone say, or saw someone say, I should say, on Twitter, um, just think, if Biden wins this election, there may come a day next year where for a full 24 hours, you don't think about who's president of the United States. Mm. And I just thought, oh, my God, that's it, exactly. We've been expending, I mean, it's it's been obviously much less so for someone like me who doesn't live in the country and who let's face it is a white middle-aged man but it's still been a traumatic event i just can't imagine what it's been what this has been like for people who are in these these macro demographic groups who have been literally legally and politically and culturally beaten down by this situation because the feeling for me was one not of exaltation or not of sort of Epiphany, But actually just the way when you've been carrying a 50 pound backpack for, for four years and suddenly you realize, oh, wait, I can put this down. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, that, yeah. But Barbara, I guess that's also something about what going on for you on Saturday afternoon by the sound of it.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, we haven't gone one day without hearing Trump's name on the BBC. And um, now it's time to move on and uh, talk about the really important things instead of what this turkey has been doing for five years. Yeah, uh, there's something peculiarly
1: specific, isn't it? Because it's not like it's not like it was. It's not like uh, this was a Bush or a Reagan or a Thatcher or 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 a Cameron. It's not like it was. It's not like that, right? So there's some there's some particular pain associated with this right wing politician. I wonder if you could say something about how that feels as being an American abroad and how that how that's affected your lives.
2: Well you can't walk into a pub without someone finding out you're an American and then you're you're under the gun answering questions (laughs) for an entire evening about why is America doing this? Um, So in in that very personal way, once we get back to the pubs, I won't have to be the apologist. (laughs)
1: Did you, did you Did you? what about for you for you justin how does, how does how does how does having to be did you ever feel as though you had to explain this for not this weird phenomenon because clearly europe all of europe has been looking at america for the last five years going they're so weird i
3: i've i've probably i feel like i've probably had to make some effort at explaining that i mean i don't go out much <laughs> anymore but still sort of maybe not quite weekly, but pretty close to it for, four, for a minimum of four years. I mean, it really is sort of who you are. And that's not, like you said, that's not, that wasn't the case, you know, Bush was just sort of an asshole and sort of not very good at his job in a lot of ways. Although we're finding out that actually he was incredibly competent <laughs> by comparison. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, uh, no one ever, no one ever meets someone from the United Kingdom and says, "and says, oh, you must be just like David Cameron." But, um, but for some reason, this cult of personality.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we out. had we had. Quite, I mean, it was quite a long time when traveling, people would people would go to you, Maggie Thatcher, yeah, or Maggie. That-, you know, you'd get Thatcher did that when you were traveling abroad. You definitely had to explain or respond. You were sort of being positioned in in in, in comparison to her in some way. That happened that happened for a bit uh, in, those, in those years I, I, I mean I think there's, a, there's something really interesting is that sense of relief at going back to some sort of normal centrist set of policy, politics instead of instead of something that had Obama as, as, as some sort of hope that didn 't deliver on the one hand and then the reaction to Obama in mm-hmm. this hideous right wing demagoguery that we got with Trump and the fact that we all in our comfortable ways kind of feel relief at going back to something that's actually the comfortable usual usual normal service has been resumed you know that, that feels that feels like
3: a sort of slightly also uncomfortable feeling something that's lost in that I think is that is that while these figures might have you know in the case for example of a, of a Bush to some extent but certainly an Obama and a Trump while these figures might have this overwhelming sort of stamp that they place on what it means to be an American when you live in America the president, has very very little direct effect on what happens and i think that the most worrisome to me the most the most sort of bizarre thing that changed is that you know maybe it's an effect of living overseas at the time but i think it's probably bigger than this is that trump has managed to make it such that the president is having a direct effect on things that perhaps the president used to have um, an effect on through lots of trickling down of, of political uh, effect. But in reality, a place like Pittsburgh is geographically, and that's very close to Washington, D.C. You know, it's only a five hour mm. drive to Washington, D.C. Um, but a place like Pittsburgh is, is, in effect, sort of geographically and culturally walled off from this sort of federal political machine. And not that much that happens actually affects you. Whereas over the past few years, I don't think that's been the case. I think that's really changed quite radically mm. because of the way that this creature has sort of warped and melted some of the walls that have been set up between uh, the executive branch of the federal government and everything else. So in effect, you you have to remember that like, it's not just a sort of uh, a mental exasperation, but in fact, people have been literally having to deal with a, 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 a sort of radical change in the way these things operate. Yeah, Barbara.
2: Exactly, because you talked about trickle down. I think one of the most important trickle downs that we will have from Trump is the fact that I think he was instrumental in having about 200 federal judges appointed over his uh, term of office. Um, He's also dismantled the Environmental Control Agency. And that will have a direct effect ultimately on people's lives, whether they realize it or not.
0: What do you two think will happen in terms of Trump getting himself out of this hole? Or do you think actually that's the wrong question, that he doesn't see it that way? And the second question is really about how, what you're talking about, Barbara, is that somebody who is malicious will basically try and fuck the thing up for anybody coming in. Do you think that's what it is going to be like, wrecking tactics?
2: Do you want me to go first on this? or Sure, uh, go for um, it. I think Trump will finally come to the realisation uh, that he has lost this election, number one. Number two, he's going to go on TV, get his own show, and just spout a la Rush Lumba on what he feels and keep his base activated. And in 2024, if he's still healthy, I'm sure he's gonna make a run for it again. Um,
1: really, you think so? That's a that's a very distressing prospect.
2: Yeah. He does he. He hates to be a loser. That's the worst thing he can call anybody else, a loser. And now he's the big loser. Uh, So he's got to come back and show people that he's not. That's how he's built. Um, That's what I think he's going to do. And he's also got to get get himself out of all these lawsuits that are gonna come after him once he's out of office, because what's her name? Letitia James, who's the attorney general in New York state, she's got a couple of suits that look really viable, um, that will really unveil all his tax um, shenanigans, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm wondering if he ends up with the jail sentence, which would also make him more of a popular um television or radio star host ultimately in his mind
3: yeah justin i think um to kind of possibly go on a tangent from your actual question (laughs) Um, the uh what what he does i mean he's going to leave the white house he might not concede you know there's a lot of discussion as to whether or not he will ever concede and There seems to be some reason to believe he will not um and that that's actually sort of you know that's part of the end game right is to is to leave but leave in a in a way that basically says i didn't actually really lose because like barbara says losing is is just this bizarre you know his father was a piece of work as you can imagine but um but uh but but then but the next step before this 2024 date comes up and is um, four years is an immense amount of time in American politics. And, uh, and, and we have to remember that Trump is a scam artist, um, literally, I don't think anybody, any of us will disagree with that, right? He's a scam artist. So I think it is time to recognize that 70 plus million people voted for him, 70 plus million people more than voted for him in 2016 looked at what he had done and who this person really was and said I want more of that and I think that we have to recognize to be perfectly honest I don't even care if it's not true I still feel like I want to recognize that if he's a scam artist he has scammed people and these people have voted for something that they were defrauded into voting for, not in the sort of electoral fraud sense, in the kind of cultural sense. So since we're coming at this, you know, we're coming at this as cultural workers, as writers and artists and people who work in the arts, um, maybe, maybe one of the things that we can start to talk about is, and I don't have any idea what this is, but how can we start to change that language so, that we can begin to win back some of that language, uh, you know, so, some of those concepts, some of those symbols that have been stolen from us by this scam artist. Um, and so, in other words, it, to answer Simon's question, maybe more important than what happens with Trump is what happens with this is an audio podcast i can't do that with my hands (laughs) um is what happens with this massive with trump with maga hats and you know and america
1: where, where where do the 70 million go is the question and what do they do and how and how does the how are we as as cultural people and people of the left able to actually start to they turn and, and reappropriate that, that Trumpian discourse and the populist discourse, which isn't just Trumpian, it's also in mm. India, it's in Turkey, it's in, it's in Brazil, yeah. it's in Britain. And it's, and it's a way in which the right have capitalised upon the deficiencies of globalisation for the working class, right? So, so, so what Trump did, which is amazing, was say, I don't, I don't buy globalisation and it, and actually that's what the populists have been saying we have to stop you know globalization is bad for us we have to we have to we have to think differently and of course that's a message that on the left has not been very popular particularly amongst people like us international cosmopolitan globalized um, urban, very, very connected to the urban, um, even though they might live in Dedham in the middle of, in the middle of, in the middle of rural Essex, uh, Justin. But certainly our consciousnesses are, are formed by the urban thing. I was really struck by those maps of city and, and country division, mm-hmm. which is exactly the same as the UK politics. It's exactly the same as what happens in India. What we have going on in the world right now is that, that separation, you know, between city and country and between the cultural politics of both of those places and between how they each benefit from globalization or not. And so I think that's the, that's the, that's the task for us, is how do we, as, as, as cultural workers in the space that we're in, start to speak about that and start to actually, uh, as it were, disavow the privileges that we, all, that we all have from globalization and say, well, actually not everybody shares that. And how do we deal with that problem? There's a big question.
2: And by
0: the way, that was a great tangent, Justin. Sorry, Barbara, go ahead.
2: You said conversation, John, and I think that's how we have to do it, uh, little by little. Um, We have to talk to the people who, as you say, are not like us and have a quiet conversation um, it, it doesn't matter what CNN says because CNN is, is talking to the people who believe what CNN says. And, um, I'm, I'm just thinking about people I know back in the States who are not urban intellectuals who are not on the left and namely from upstate New York, the people I know up there. And it's, in a way, in conversations I've had with them, it's, they feel so divorced from government, from how things are run, that as long as it doesn't affect them in their day-to-day lives, they don't care. And we, ha- we have to have a conversation where people start to care, whether you're Democrat or Republican.
3: And we have to, and we have to find a way, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to talk this way because the past four years and the past 400 years (laughs) um, have, uh, have created, you know, there are people out there who don't look like me, who have no (laughs) reason. to be perfectly frank, have, don't really have any reason to want to enter into a conversation with um, the people who we're talking about on the Trumpist right. This, this thing that we can bizarrely talk about as the center right in America, despite the fact that any, in most other places it would be like far right extremism. But, um, but you know, uh, I can completely understand people who say no, we're nope they need to be they need to shut up and get out of the picture and i think that i think that we as a as a we the general the biggest possible we um not the four of us or our ilk but the biggest possible we uh, transatlantic need to figure out how is it that we honor that trauma while also being able to enter into a conversation that whether we like it or not is is vital and i i haven't heard anyone with a good answer to that yeah how you how you walk that line
1: yeah and and also it doesn't it doesn't really feel like joe biden's the guy to really open those doors
2: well also what we're talking about is something that is not new to the 21st century or the 20th century. There's always been a divide between urban and rural in in the United States, in the colonies. And I just remember from my own childhood that in upstate New York, there's this terrible hostility towards New York City because New York takes all the tax money. So, this is a historical problem not just a new one
1: yeah i've been reading this year elizabeth strout's book books about olive and olive again and, and actually it's about a small town in maine and and hilariously how they hate new york and new yorkers and people that leave maine to go and live in new york you know mm. that's that that sort of so so i i get i get that that's a long-standing problem I, I think maybe the the kind of um so 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 just thinking like you know towards what you think might happen in the next couple of years or few years Barbara said already that she thinks that Trump will just regroup using using the media and come back again
3: Justin do you think that's going to happen I I think I would um, uh, I think I'd take a hard pass on that question okay. <laughs> I kind of feel like um, you know in my mind well obviously not but the number of times I've said that over the past five years um, is is ridiculous. So, so who absolutely knows? But I do think that you know, as to what as to what will happen. And and you mentioned Joe Biden perhaps not being the person who can make this conversation happen. Uh, I heard two well two things. First of all. I've come to the realization, well, realization is the wrong word. I've come to personally believe that Joe Biden, despite his many, many, many flaws, is the perfect person for right now. Because the fact of the matter is that country is drowning in coronavirus and no one's done anything in any coordinated manner. And here's a person who's gonna get totally screwed on this transition. We're already seeing that happen. He's not being given any of the normal transition actions Um, but he was in the white house for eight years and he knows everybody he's in the senate he's in the national federal government in Mm -hmm. washington dc for nearly 50 years and he's able he's going to be able to step in in a way that no other candidate could have possibly done um, without any help from the current administration so that's what has to happen right now but I did hear someone say this really fascinating statement and I'm racking my brain now as to who it was, but they were talking about, um, you know, obviously in America, the the big thing we're always talking about is race. And someone said, you know, we need someone who can bring race to the table. And this person responded by saying, this is the problem is that everybody's always talking about bringing race to the table. We don't even have a table. And uh, I thought that, I thought, oh my God, they're so right. like. Maybe Joe Biden can build the table. Yeah, maybe he can take those incredibly—you know—after 400 years or or 40 years, somewhere in between, perhaps, of uh, of needing to solve this problem, we're still at the point of needing to build that table. And and maybe for some of these issues, you know, he's a small town guy. He's uh, he's a working class, blue collar liberal. You know, for America, liberal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Democrat, maybe he can, maybe he can straddle some of those lines in a way that hasn't been done for a while. Yeah. Barbara?
2: Well, I just want to correct something. I don't think Trump will succeed in what I, I uh, envisioned for him. I think that's what he's going to do. But uh, no, I don't think I don't think he will succeed in running in 2024. He will try though.
1: So so given given that there's this I really like that image of building the table, like actually just constructing the idea of a table that, that everybody that, mm-hmm. that, that 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 can form an alliance that people can sit at in an in an equitable way. Let's let's hope that can happen. What, what does, what does, what's the work of culture in that? And I asked this question not as, I mean, there's something very specific underneath that question. It seems to me that there's, a, there's, a, there's also a massive polarization in the cultural world at the moment, especially uh, that actually that actually most people that work in the cultural world are not really interested. Having that dialogue that we talked about earlier on, where you can open doors to people that aren't like you is very difficult for the cultural sector at the moment, where there's a lot of stuff that goes on that's very judgmental, very supercritical, not terrifically open uh quite quite focused on on subjectivities actually and and sort of how it how it feels Uh, all of which of course is is to be expected but i just wondered what you what your sense of that was is is what can you think of any work that you've seen or that you love that's doing that work of actually building the future in that really open and inclusive way Not really. <laughs> there's, there's a, the, the, this. My screens are full of my, my screens are full of shrugging and openness. Uh, so what, what what might that work be? What what sorts of things would that would that be? Can you imagine what sorts of things people might need to do, and what what sorts of, what sorts of poetry performance, painting, cinema, music could we could we could we hope for?
2: I think. First of all, step number one, make museums free in the United States. You cannot go to the Metropolitan Museum now if you're not a member for less than $25 a ticket. Um, And that's that's why I think the UK is so good because at least you can go in and see the national collections um, throughout the country for free you may not see a special exhibition but you can walk into a museum anytime
0: I just wanted to ask come in on that actually I mean obviously what America could do with is is a good injection of um kind of British pragmatism in terms of the balance between the state and and the individual but uh I've never understood that people on the hard right in the US, why do they not want to have uh, Obamacare or free health care? Why is that a civil liberties issue? Why do people have to queue up at football stadiums to get basic health care? It, it, it seems barbaric to me. <laughs>
2: It's, it's, one, it's one of those moments socialism
0: <laughs> yeah it's one of those moments
1: you're being asked simon's asking you to be the americans and account for this for this behavior it's yeah. not your fault we know that yeah it's fine why
0: why, why have you done that barbara
1: <laughs> but
0: it
1: oh, but ne- <laughs> <laughs> but, ne- but nevertheless it is hard to understand why why it's become that sort of free that sort of free speech issue you said oh it's because it's regarded as socialism barbara and therefore evil in some way
2: Yeah, Um, I, again, going back to my personal experience with my parents, my dad was what you would call a liberal Republican. Um, He would never have voted for Trump. On the other hand, if you talk about socialized medicine, it smacks not of socialism necessarily, but it smacks of communism. And that's where the two get mixed up in American heads, I think.
1: And that, those arguments were, of course, made against the National Health when it was being f- conceived in the in the in the thirties and the forties in this country. They, they you know there were arguments against the National Health Service because it was somehow a, um, represented the incursion of 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 Stalinism, Stalinist communism into UK life. Yeah, Justin.
3: And um, you know, uh, the things I'm going to say are are implicit in in what Barbara's just said, but uh, but I think it's worth bringing out that um that it's not. I don't think it's always simply a knee-jerk response to the concept, to the ideological concept of socialism. It is in fact, um, you you know, first of all, you have to remember that these are people who've gone through a minimum of 12 years of an education system that essentially, I mean, I, in public school, you know, public in the American sense, state school, I had to, as part of curriculum, read two Ayn Rand books. So, wow. we're talking about a system in which people are educated to believe is probably the wrong word to understand, I'm doing finger quotes here, um, to understand that government is by its very nature, not able to do as good a job as the private sector. So what you're telling people when you're telling people, uh, talking to people about nationalized healthcare is saying we want everyone to have healthcare that's nowhere near as good as what you personally have right now. That's what that's what they're hearing, and and they also believe very you know they also believe very strongly that they're being told that they have to participate in the lives of others, and other people have to participate in their life. The first time I went uh, a few years ago, only a year or so after I moved here, I guess. Um, I had appendicitis and I hadn't even, I don't think I'd even been to a doctor in the UK yet. Um, and I had to go to the hospital. I had to go to an emergency, you know, an emergency visit. And, um, and I was in for three days or something. And when I left, I had this insane experience where I walked out the, I walked out the door and I had to go to the train station to get back to where I was living because I'd been in London when this happened. So, I didn't go to the train station. I was standing in the train, walking through Liverpool Street, and I had this sudden realization that every single person that I walked past had contributed a small bit to me getting that emergency operation. And it was a shocking feeling. And for me, it was, you know, I started tearing up, literally. Mm-hmm. I just felt like, oh my God, we are by definition in this together. But it also made me realize that I had been raised despite having lefty, you know, my father's from England. My father's a a British labor guy, essentially. And and even with that upbringing, my American upbringing meant that I thought this was really weird. I still go up to the desk after I go to the doctor and ask, (laughs) if there's something i need to do don't i need to pay um and i've been here for seven eight years so um so i think these things are are genuinely foreign like in each sense of that word um and you know i always think because i'm from pittsburgh which is a very democrat very blue city but it's also a place where lots of people own guns right and it's very strange when i talk to people that i have lots of friends who work in in you know uh, activism, who work for the Democratic Party or work in further left activism, who also are hunters or gun owners, or in some cases own multiple handguns. And that's something that seems so strange here. And now I suddenly realize it, that must look really weird
2: mm-hmm.
0: to,
3: to other people. But when you're in that milieu for so long, it just seems like, oh yeah, well, people, people carry guns around <laughs> and then well, pay for health pay to go to the doctor right? yes. the way it is
2: and we pay for our education
3: yeah um, well you do here now too
2: well right? <laughs> now but but the idea of free education is quite foreign in the united states it's bizarre it is genuinely
3: it is absolute i still find it to be very strange to think that people go to well they don't anymore but but people of my age went to world-class universities for three or four years for nothing, for absolutely mm-hmm. nothing. I still find it absolutely bizarre. Mm-hmm. I can't but, so this is, a,
1: this is a fantastic lesson in how ideology works. You know, the way it gets into your head. I mean, that story that you just told, Justin, about, about crying on Liverpool station because you realised that everybody had contributed to your health... That's like almost like the new the, the, the neural pathways in your brain had been so had been, you know, ideology actually actually does things to your brain and to the way you feel yourself in the world. It really does do that. And actually that feeling was that those things coming into conflict, you know, in this amazing way. Um I, I suppose, I suppose there was just one thing I wanted to come back to, if we might, just um, which was I think just in after Barbara had said about the museums being open, which I think is such a great really simple straightforward open and blooming museums for people so they can actually at least go and wander about and, 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 re, and readjust their heads into a different ideological framing once in a while what, what was what were you wanting to say then about sort of cultural work and the role of the role of artists and so on at that in this time?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, that's that's such a massive idea. I mean, free museums would be, you know, it would be one of those trickle-downs, really, wouldn't it? I mean, it's something relatively, to lots of other things, relatively cheap that can be done, that can transform the way people understand their relationship to the culture. Um, but I think, you know, I've, I've been... Um, I've been I've always loved country music and um, I'm sort of going through a phase right now of listening to a lot of country music reading about country music and that sort of thing and uh, and I've been following a few people just on social media who um, who are fairly established, not sort of the biggest of the big mainstream country people, but established Nashville country musicians who are, for example, you know, outspokenly for Black Lives Matter, or things like that. And I kind of feel like, while you know, perhaps these kinds of, you know, perhaps country genre music, you know, country music, uh, hip hop, bluegrass, um, you know, uh, in the South, sort of Southern soul and Southern soul blues and cajun and these kinds of musics you know uh, not to concentrate just on music but it feels like things are transforming maybe in just small ways but but important ways in those kinds of fields and maybe the cultural work that needs to be done needs to recognize that that i for example am not going to be one of the people you know the the people who who need some kind of uh, um need some kind of way of seeing a different cultural outlook they're not going to read the books i write they're not gonna you know but they are going to listen to uh hip-hop or or country music or they're going to go see you know these uh the new avengers franchise films you know things like things like black panther um or captain marvel those those things strike me as the places where that cultural change happens that then opens up you know it's almost like uh you know it's almost like um like when ice gets into a when water freezes in a in a tiny little hole in the in the in the street and then it as it freezes, it expands out into a pothole. We want that pothole.
1: <laughs> that yeah, was a yeah, shit no, metaphor,
3: wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Radic- no, I mean,
1: I think I think um, popular culture and I think radical country and Western popular culture, opening museums, that sounds like, you know, that sounds like a great agenda to, to kind of, to, to move forward with, you know, and think about those things. And I think the same is probably probably true here too, that popular culture is one of the places that has always interested me. It's certainly, you know, where, where I spent a lot of time doing my thing. So, yeah. Um, OK, cool. So um, we're probably reaching the end of the conversation now and just thinking about how we get to a, we, how, how we how we how we, we we wrap up. I'm just wondering if there's anything now that's on your minds thinking about this, you know, how do you how do you imagine that you might look back on this tumultuous fortnight uh, 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 when you when you get further along in your life? How is it going to fit into the political narrative of your lives?
2: I have no idea. <laughs> I, it, it It is a monumental moment. And I think how it fits into my retrospective view of my political narrative in my own head um, has to do with what happens in the next two months.
3: Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking when I was thinking about this conversation this morning, I was thinking about um, George, God, I've even, George H. W. Bush. So elected in 1988, defeated in 1992. And there are a few things, there are a few moments like um, the first Iraq war was under him, I believe. And, uh, and that was, that was pretty big because that was when I was 18 and, you know, there were, protests in the streets and it was the first real participation in that kind of thing that that i had other than that i basically can't really remember anything about this and at the time it seemed like a really desperate event you know uh, george hw bush being elected the continuation of the reagan years all, all of that felt like this oh my goodness at the time obviously nowhere near what the past four years have been like and obviously his defeat is nothing even remotely like this and yet at the same time i couldn't help but think wow i've basically forgotten that that happened so i do think that with the right events over the next six months say um depending on what happens with covid depending on what happens with international you know the international relationships of the united states of america my personal ability to go see my family those kinds mm-hmm. of things my friends what happens to my friends what happens but based on those things i think it's entirely possible that we will look back on this not as a forgotten thing by any means as a really major event in american history but still as a as a what the fuck happened there instead of oh yeah that was the beginning of what we're going through now yeah I, You know, maybe I'm too much of an optimist, but that's what I think is at least a possibility.
2: Well, as human beings, we have short memories anyway.
3: As Americans, we certainly do. Yeah. (laughs) So So you were,
2: you just made me think of walking down a street in Albany, New York, right after Nixon had been reelected with tears streaming down my face thinking, oh, this is the end of the world. And um, it wasn't. (laughs)
3: And yet, and now you never think about Nixon getting reelected, really do you <laughs> Something more important happened with him um, yeah. yeah and we do you know we do have we do have very short memories, and that's on purpose. America is built on forgetting, and that's an absolute travesty most of the time <laughs> well, I kind of love
1: that as, a, as an ending point let's let's hope that we can consign. This period of history to being an aberration, and that we can forget because something much better comes along, and that the Dem- and that and that the Democrats or whoever or whoever else rises is able to actually put in place a a green new deal uh, and 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 we can actually look at look towards a future that's based on on deep meeting with the climate crisis rather than all the other nonsense that is being been denied for the last few years. So. Uh, That's what I'm hoping for. That's my sort of sense of, you know, that's what I'm looking for anyway. So, look, thanks, Barbara, and thanks, Justin. It's been great to talk to you. You have been listening to The Parallel State.